First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Picking up in verse 13 today, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that... When they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is the Word of God. I wonder how many of you have ever been in the kind of situation where you mustered up the courage to share the gospel with someone which I hope you do with some frequency. You opened your mouth, you started the conversation, you, you got the ball rolling, and the conversation was moving towards Jesus. And then you had someone say something back to you, and they absolutely stopped you in what you were trying to say. Whatever question they asked, whatever objection they raised, you had no idea how to answer it. Has anyone ever been in that situation? I think any of us who have ever tried to share the gospel have at some point been stumped uh, by a question or a comment by an unbeliever. For me, as a teenager, uh, and I hope that you teenagers get jobs, it's good for you to work and learn how to earn money and, and, and manage it. Uh, but I remember even as 15, 16, 17 years old, working was good for me, not just because it taught me how to work or how to earn money or manage my money, but, uh, you know, I was a Christian school kid. I went to Christian school from kindergarten all the way through the 12th grade. My parents took me to church at least three times a week, depending on what kind of events were going on. My exposure, my entire exposure to the world was to the world of Christians, People who thought like I did, who believed like I did. And when you enter the workforce with that kind of, of background, you find out that there are people who don't think exactly like you do. And it was good for me not just to experience relationships with the people, but in, in my own process of mustering up the courage to share the gospel and to try to tell people about Jesus, to be stumped. Because what happens when you get stumped by something once? 
You go and you dig and you search and you find the answer. And that question will never once stump you again. You might get stopped with something else later on down the road, but you will never be stumped by that thing that came and hit you the first time. And many people today do not share the gospel, not because they don't love the Lord, not because they don't believe the gospel or because they they don't think it's really their responsibility, but they don't share the gospel simply because they're afraid that they won't be able to give a defense of Christianity. They're afraid they won't be able to answer the questions of unbelievers. And Peter, in, in this passage, in verse 15, tells us to be ready to give a defense To give a reason for the hope that's in us. And in this passage, I think he clues us in to what is Christianity's greatest defense. It's not, believe it or not, it's not the ability to answer the question, where did Cain get his wife? Or were there dinosaurs on the ark? Or any other number of questions that people raise when it comes to the Scriptures. But Christianity's greatest defense is how you conduct yourselves and how you rest your own life and you rest your hope in Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. So let's just walk through this passage together and and we'll get there, maybe. Verse 13, he says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? I think what he's doing here, he's he's given us all these examples of how Christians are to conduct themselves honorably before the world. He started out telling us to submit to authority. He told the slaves in those days to be good servants, to not rebel against your masters. He said that wives should submit to their husbands, that husbands should care for and love their wives. He comes along in the passages that we studied the last couple of Sundays and how we conduct ourselves in the church, how we should love one another and be of one mind, treat each other with respect. And when we are insulted or when people do evil against us, that we don't return in kind, but we return with blessing. We want to see good days. So hold your tongue back from evil. Keep your lips from speaking evil. Don't do evil. Seek peace. Pursue it. And Peter says, all of these things I've taught you, these things I've written to you. And he says, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And I think that's a a general principle for life. That's not a guaranteed promise that if you obey the Scriptures and conduct yourself in a godly way, that you'll never have to suffer. That no one will ever do you harm. Certainly that happens frequently. But as a general principle for life, if you submit yourself to authority in a godly way, the authority isn't going to have much to hold against you. If you're a wife and you respect your husband, your husband doesn't really have a lot of reason to be against you. Husbands, if you love your wives well, your wives don't really have a lot of reason to be against you. If you love one another in the church and you care for one another and you have the same mind, then it's less likely that someone in the church is going to turn against you. I think we'd all agree that those are good general principles, that people who live according to the morality of the Scriptures generally live more peaceable lives. But, verse 14 begins, But, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. And let's just all go ahead and acknowledge that that's a reality. 
That even when you try to live a godly life and do what is right in all things, and even if you succeed in that, not everyone is going to be so appreciative of how you conduct yourself. Not everyone will care that you're trying to live for the Lord. Not everyone will be happy that you're trying to live and do the right thing at all times. So he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are what? Blessed. Now, hashtag blessed doesn't usually appear on the internet with a picture of someone being stoned. Hashtag blessed doesn't show up on the internet with somebody being cussed out for sharing the gospel with a stranger. We think of blessed in terms of prosperity, in what good things the Lord does for us that we can see, what the world would agree are good things. That when we have money in the bank and food in the fridge and the kids are all healthy and your, your family has no uh, strife when things are going well in the church, people look at that and they say, yes, we are, we are blessed. God has blessed us with these good things, and certainly we should praise God for those blessings. I don't want to diminish that in any way. Praise God for the good things that He has done for you. But when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount what a blessed person was, who did He start with? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He said, and in, in, in down in, towards the end of the Beatitudes there, in uh, chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James told us this. He said, rejoice, didn't he say? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Really, James? When we're persecuted, when things go wrong, when it's not all that great, you say, count it all joy? You, you reckon it as joy. It doesn't feel joyful. You're not happy about it. You're not just jumping with, with tears of happiness. But he says, count it, esteem it as joy when you fall into various trials. Why can we do that? How can we count it all joy when things go poorly, when we are mistreated, or when we suffer, even when we're doing what's right? A couple of reasons. James continues. He says this, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We can rejoice in suffering because we know that it is through suffering that the Lord is purifying us, that He's making us holy, that He's conforming us to the image of His Son. Romans 8, 28 and 29. I love these verses. We quote them all the time. Everybody knows 28. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Praise God for that. How do you know? Why do you know that everything's going to work out for good? Verse 29. For whom He foreknew, those He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. You can be confident. You can know that everything's going to work out good for you because God's ultimate good for you is to make you more like Jesus. Jesus. 
So you can suffer when you go through trials. You can suffer when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. You can suffer through anything and rejoice because it is through your sufferings that God is making you more like Jesus. And not only that, James went on in verse 12 of the same chapter. He said, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, that is when you've gone through these things and done it well to the glory of God, he says he will receive the crown of life, which is promised to those who love him. So it's not only conformity to the image of Christ in this life. It's not just being drawn closer into a relationship with God here, but it is the promise of the crown when we get to heaven. That there is a life hereafter where we will enjoy God for all eternity. So what if you suffer for a hundred years on earth? If you get to be with God for eternity. So he says this, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. And you know, many of you know what it is to suffer. Even when you're trying to live righteously for the Lord. But know this, even if you should suffer you are blessed. He says, just after that, he's actually quoting Isaiah here. He says, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Don't be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Well, it makes sense then if people are going to persecute you and harm you for righteousness sake, and you're not really living for this world anyway, that you shouldn't be afraid of what happens in this world. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, there's only so much that the world can do to you. The absolute worst thing that they can do to you, if you're a Christian, is actually the best thing that could happen to you. If the worst thing they can do to you is kill you, (laughs) and we really believe that for the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, then the worst that they can do is actually the best thing that could ever happen to you. So there's only so much you can be afraid of. In the world. There's only so much they can do. He says rather than fearing men. How about this? Fear God. Because God doesn't just have any control over what happens in your body. But he can do something to your soul. You see if you're, you live your life fearing men. You're living for the approval of men. And, and what other people think. And you don't give concern to what God thinks and what God says in His Word. And you live for your own pleasures, your own desires, for the approval of others. You might have a good life here. You might have nothing to fear in the eyes of man. But friend, let me tell you, you have much to fear in the sight of God. Because he can't, he's not just going to kill your body. Your body's not just going to die at the end of your life. But at that point then, your soul and your body can be cast into hell. Friend, fear God. Fear God. Don't, fear, don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled because of them. They can't do but so much. Fear God. And so in, in giving it a defense, the, the work has to begin in the heart. 
This is what he says next in verse 15. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You can't just decide one day in the power of the flesh, I'm going to live for the Lord no matter what happens to me, I'm going to stand firm. You can't do it. You won't. You'll fall, you'll fail. Your resolve is not enough. So Peter says it has to start this way. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Living for the Lord, standing firm through suffering, through persecution, has to begin as a work in the heart. What does it mean to sanctify? It means simply to set apart. Sanctify the Lord God. Set Him apart in your heart. He's not just a little corner room in your house. He has to be the priority. He has to be the one who's in charge. The verse could be translated this way, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You see, here's the thing. The Christian life begins in the heart. External obedience alone won't help you. At the same time, external obedience reflects our submission to God in our hearts. You see, Jesus is already your Lord. He is already your King. He is sovereign. Not just over you individually, but over all creation. He's long-suffering, He's patient, and He's kind. And that's the only reason He hasn't wiped us out yet. Because we don't live, we certainly don't live as if He is our Lord and our King. So He's already your Lord. He's already your King. He's already your Sovereign. The question is this, have you submitted to Him as your Lord, your King, your Sovereign? Have you sanctified the Lord God in your hearts? Have you set Him apart from everything else in your heart that He rules over the little kingdom that is your life? As the old preachers used to say when I was a kid, is the Lord sitting on the throne of your heart or are you? Who rules your life? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And especially for, for people in their teens and 20s, that's when you seem apparently to care the most about what people around you think. Let me just say this, how you're treated for your actions should not dictate your actions. What people think of you is not nearly as important as what God thinks of you. So my instruction to you is the same as Peter's to this church. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set Him as your ruler, Him as your King. And bow to Him and be obedient regardless of what anyone else around you may think. You probably will suffer for it. But He is worth it. He is worth it. You owe Him allegiance. You owe Him affection. You owe Him obedience. The question is, have you submitted to Him? Have you regarded Him as Lord in your heart? And your actions really prove your answer. Are you continuing in sin just because you like it? Or because it's convenient? Or because others tell you you should? Or do you turn away from your sin and follow the Lord? Jesus prayed for this same thing. Don't you remember Matthew 6? Jesus says, pray like this. 
He says, Our Father, which art in heaven, say it with me in the old King James, hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? <laughs> no one in here has used the word hallowed this week. Or hallowed, if you're above 50 or 60 years old. Jesus is praying. He's asking for something. What's he asking for? What does that mean? He says, Our Father in heaven, may your name be regarded as holy. May your name be regarded as holy. I pray that prayer every day for myself. God, you are my Father. You are in heaven. You are exalted over me. I submit to you. May your name be regarded as holy in my life, in my heart. When I think of you, may I not think of you as something small or flippant or there to serve me. But may I regard you as holy. May your name be hallowed in me. If I can be personal with you for a second, I don't just pray it for myself. I pray it for you. That in Simmons Grove, that the people who gather here Sunday after Sunday, week after week, who have been here, some of you for years, some of you for your entire life, my prayer for you is this. May God's name be regarded as holy. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Max, Ed, Charles, Judy, all of you. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. May God's name be regarded as holy by you. And then after that, after that, he says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and... Always be ready to give a defense. Always be ready to give a defense. You see, if you live your life in such a way that you regard the Lord's name as holy, He is sanctified as Lord in your heart, you are submitting to Him, guess what? It's going to cause problems for you. You're going to have people notice that there's something different in the way you live your life compared to the way they live theirs. Or the other people they know who call themselves Christians. There's going to be a difference in you. He says, be ready to give a defense. And you think about who's writing this. It's Peter. Do we think about Peter as the guy who stood up and proudly defended his relationship with Jesus? No. He's the denier. He's the guy who was at the fire warming himself as Jesus had just been betrayed and was about to be killed. And somebody said, hey, weren't you following him too? I never met the guy. Are you sure you really look like one of those guys that was with Jesus? Nope, never knew him. Or, I know you were with him. Your voice betrays you. And he begins to curse and says, I never knew the man. That had to come into Peter's mind as he wrote this. Be ready to give a defense to everyone. A couple of ways he could mean this in giving a defense. 
One, he could mean to give a defense to the authorities when they were persecuted by officials. And certainly that did happen in Rome. Matthew 10, Jesus told them that this would happen. He said, don't worry about what you're going to say. They're going to drag you before the authorities. He said, and and just when you get there, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit's going to help you and give you what you need to say so you can give a defense for the hope that's in you. And that, that could be what he means here, and I'm sure that's a part of it. But he doesn't just say to give a defense to the authorities, does he? He says, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks. Everyone who asks. This is, these are the everyday people in your life who observe you and the way you conduct yourself and the way you live. Those whom you speak with. Peter's assuming that the people here have a desire to evangelize and to share the gospel. So what is the defense? What is the defense that we are to give? He says this, a reason for the hope that is in you. Christianity's defense is this, it is the reason for the hope that is is in you. Yes, we, we should give a reason. We should give a defense. It must be a reasonable answer. We should be prepared as best we can to defend the Scriptures, to defend our Lord, and to speak the truth. We should be. But a logical argument alone never saved anybody. Answering all the the questions of biblical archaeology and and all the questions that come up as people read the Bible and they don't understand and and, and supposed apparent contradictions and being able to answer those things, those things alone never saved a sinner yet. Logic won't cut it. He says give a reason for the hope that you have. Give a reason for the hope that is in you. And what is our hope? Well, that was the whole first chapter. You just have to go back and listen to those sermons or read it again. We don't have time for all that. Our hope is this, let me summarize, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That we who were living for ourselves, living in sin, living in rebellion against God, who deserved His punishment, our just reward would have been damnation in hell for all eternity. But God who is rich in mercy, for the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive in Christ, Jesus Himself, God in the flesh, came to earth and lived a sinless and a perfect life in your behalf and mine. He didn't have to die, but He laid down His life willingly on the cross. He had nails in His hands and His feet, a crown of thorns in His brow. He was mocked, He was persecuted, and He was killed. And in His death, He took the weight, the punishment, the wrath of your sin and mine on Himself, so that in God's sight, when we repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus alone. He doesn't see us anymore. All our sins are washed away. Jesus paid for that. He looks at us now and He sees the righteousness, the goodness of His only begotten Son who laid down His life for us. That is the hope that we have. You can't do anything to me. I'm not going to hell. You can't do anything to me. I'm not under the judgment of God. Go ahead. Persecute me. Kill me. Give me cancer. Take away my money. If I die here, I'm going to spend eternity with God. 
That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that He's given us. You don't have to get that excited when you tell people, but... I mean, you can. Listen, if you live your life in such a way that your conduct is honorable before God, people are going to see a difference. If you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, you set Him as the ruler of your life, you submit to His authority, people will see. Whenever you suffer and you're not despairing, when you suffer and you're not hopeless, people are going to ask why. Because last time I checked, Christians suffer just as much as anybody else in the world. Christians have miscarriages just as much as anybody else in the world. Christians get cancer just as much as anybody else in the world. Christians lose their jobs just as much as anybody else in the world. What's the difference? Why do we have hope? That's the question. And you must be ready to give an answer for that hope. Let me tell you about Jesus. He doesn't always fix all of our problems in this life, but I have hope beyond this life. Through these things I'm going through right now, He's just making me more like Jesus. And when I die here, i got an eternity in heaven with Him. That's the hope that you have. The implication here, you think about the logic, is that usefulness to God often comes through suffering. You know, if you get down on your knees and you say, God, I love you, you saved me, I want to serve you, I want to give you my life and be useful for you. Use me, God. That's a prayer that honors God, a prayer of submission. But don't be surprised when your usefulness to God comes through a path of suffering. Christians, just be ready for that. Just go ahead and prepare for that now. Whether you're going through it now or not, I promise you will. If you're submissive to God. Well, let's move on. He says to do it with meekness and fear. Again, this is Peter writing. This is not the guy that's characterized by meekness and gentleness. God can make that change in you, though. And he says, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. He's just repeating what he's already said. Live your life in such a way that when people bring an accusation against you, nobody will believe it. For it's better. Listen, this, he says it's better. If it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If it's the will of God for you to suffer for doing good or while you're doing good, Peter says it's better. God's plan is better than anything we could ever come up with for ourselves. We all know the verse in Isaiah, His ways are higher than our our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't understand fully the mind of God. But if it's God's will for you to suffer in doing good, let me encourage you in this. It's better. It's the best plan that God could ever give you. Because we have hope. And we must be ready to share that hope. Would you stand as we pray?
Father, we praise you for the hope that we have in Christ. That not while we were good or not while we were righteous, but while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how you showed us your love. And if Jesus, our master, the perfect human being that ever walked the face of the earth, God in the flesh, if his path was one of suffering, should we, his servants, consider ourselves better than our master? Lord, may we anticipate it and be ready for it. And even now, rest in the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, as people observe our lives and the things we suffer, and ask us, why is it you have hope? May we be ready to give a defense, to give a reason for the hope we have in Christ. And I pray again that if someone here doesn't know you, that they would repent and believe today. In Jesus' name, amen.